Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Bye, Jiminy, it's warm. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is Florida weather. At least in Florida weather you prepared for it. At least in Florida everywhere you go in has air conditioning. There is that. <laughs> oh, so, we'll, we'll sit here in our own sweat <laughs> and record an episode just for you, lovely listeners. Don't say we don't do anything for you. Just be grateful it's not smell vision Oh, God, yeah. We should be sat in a bath, dude. Of ice cubes. <laughs> not together. Of course. Obviously. That would o- be. Over Skype. That would be... Yeah, over Skype. That would be much better. We don't like Skype recording. We prefer the, the, the visceral reality of being in the same room together, don't we? Yes. It's more, you know, bounce off each other better. All right, I think we do. What have we done this week? Nothing. Excellent, good. Our first email tonight, Nothing Lasts Forever, even DC Comics crossovers, is the subtitle of a heading from Luke Giaconetta. Some say... <laughs> We've not one of these for a while. <laughs> Some say he actually quite liked Forever Evil. Okay. And that it was his favouritest of every DC crossover ever. <laughs> All we know is he's called Luke Giaconetta. I made that up, I don't know if it's his favourite or anything. I may have just slandered him. <laughs> I do apologise. Uh, Earth 3, Andy and Michael. Wow, we're from Earth 3. Does that I mean we're evil? evil? Yeah. Yeah? I think we're totally evil. I did that test the other day, how evil are you? Okay. Did you do that one on first place? No. And uh, it came out that I'm 49% evil. Right. Which means that I'm 51% good. <laughs> which means I straddle that line, don't I? I walk that line. Bit of a tip either way. But I could always go over to the dark side at any minute. You're more in the dark side than... No, you're not. If you're 51% good and 49% evil, you're more in the light than the dark. But I'm I'm obviously very Anakin. I could tip at any moment. (laughs) Just just anything could push me over the edge. Damn, this coke is warm! (laughs) Hack those Tuscan Raiders to bits. (laughs) Anyway, Luke's email begins. Andy commented that forever evil is dark as coal and brutally violent. Did I say that? That's quite good. <laughs> you sure I said that? First off, it's a book about the crime syndicate, so let's put ourselves in the correct context. Secondly, I'm also getting tired of this being the refrain as if DC's use of violence was something new and a radical change from what they've been doing for decades. The entire post-crisis reboot was designed to make DC mature and real with consequences. That's the whole point of everything DC has done since the crisis, to distance themselves from the pre-crisis universe and the inherent kiddiness of it all. Anything that runs contrary to this, including the Triangle Numbers Superman and the Wade Augustin Flash, both critically acclaimed, are the exceptions which prove the rule as far as I'm concerned. The only difference between the 80s and now is escalation. 
For what it's worth, I didn't read any of the tie-ins, save for Rogue's Revenge, which is a side story, and was able to follow the story just fine. Then again, I had lots of folks tell me it was impossible to read Blackest Night without the tie-ins, which I did as well, so what do I know? My main complaint about Forever Evil is the really irritating death of Tom DeFalco's new Shadow Thief, who was introduced in the pages of Savage Hawkman. What was really annoying about this was that the new 52 Shadow Thief was not a villain in the traditional sense. She was obsessed with hunting down aliens on Earth and was called Thief because she stole the technology of her shadow suit, and yet she's ground down as grist for the editorial mill and no one says a peep. I dug Forever Evil as I was reading it, but I haven't reread it since I finished it, and I was very annoyed to have the ending spoiled for me by a Curlers Newsarama article. I'm not particularly interested in where the story goes from here, because my tastes tend to run to more obscure material, but I dug it while it lasted. Luke. That doesn't sound like a ringing endorsement, does it? Oh, really? It was alright. Wasn't that what we said? It was alright. It was, you know, it wasn't great, it wasn't awful, didn't suck. Lex Luthor was fun. I don't know if he's supposed to be fun, but... You know. Gus Shaw has emailed in. Sweet Christmas in July. Well, it's still July. It is, yeah. So that's fortunate. Salutations, you all. As you can guess, I recently listened to last year's Christmas episode. And there's nothing that says Christmas more than sitting here baking in your own sweat. <laughs> Don't worry, my comments have little or nothing to do with the plots of Power Man or Spider-Man you covered, because you've probably forgotten them. Because Captain America made a brief appearance in the Spider-Man issue you covered, I would like to talk about him, specifically about Cap's anachronos... I can't say that word, it's too well. Specifically about Cap's anachronistic speech patterns. I am in favour. It is one line of dialogue Cap referred to Peter, or Spider-Man, I can't remember which suit he was wearing at the time, as son. You mentioned that later creators would do away with this habit because it made Cap sound elderly. I find it fitting that Steve Rogers might on occasion speak like my grandfather, who also served in World War II. Steve would only have been a couple of years older than my grandfather when he was suspended in ice. My grandfather and he would have grown up in almost the same culture and picked up similar habits of speaking and social interaction that no longer feel natural today. To me, when Steve Rogers speaks like someone from the 1940s, he doesn't sound old, he sounds like he's from another time, which he is. Captain America, being a strategic genius, would retrain his word choices and speaking style after he thaws out to make himself sound more natural to those around him. But flashbacks to around the time of his introduction to modern society would feature some of his former lingering habits and mannerisms. Just my opinion. Now to see if the internet will hold out long enough to download some of these newfangled episodes you've released. Cheers. Well, you've got six months of them, so I'm hoping that your internet held out long enough for you to enjoy... Whatever it was we did after Christmas. What did we do? A lot of things. Have we? Yeah. I'll take your word for it. Those blurs into one after a while. Chris and Cindy Franklin have emailed it. I'm pretty convinced once again that Cindy didn't have anything to do with this email. (laughs) Unless it's her writing. I could be wrong. I could be right. I could be black. I could be white. No no single line today? Too hot. Alright, okay. Legends in their own minds. Is that us? Could, yes. <laughs> I'm not even a legend in there. <laughs> Hello, Leyland's. Hi, Chris. Re, my letter about Teletubbies. Jerry Falwell was an American TV evangelist who spoke out against the Teletubbies, saying that the purse carrying Tinky Winky was gay. Tinky Winky was gay, wasn't he? Was he actually. 
I don't think it was ever shown in the show, because let's be honest, it was for kids. Tinky Winky riding the big bird probably wouldn't have made it pre-Watershed, I wouldn't have thought. But he was he was held up by the gay community as a gay icon, wasn't he? Was he, though, or did he just want something to have as a gay icon? Well, you've always got Dale Winton. I mean, I don't exactly see any evidence that says that he's gay. He had a man bag. It's a man bag. It totally what Joey from Friends on a man back. Yeah, see. He did, didn't he? Yeah. Alright, I don't know if he really was. He never talked about her. Yeah. On the show. And if he did, you couldn't understand a word he said. Unless he's, he's, he's little teletub- <laughs> his little television was showing gay porn like in Saga. <laughs> I don't think that the BBC would have allowed that. They blurted out. Did they? Yeah. Good job, really. Anyway, uh, Chris continues, what little credibility he had was thrown out of the window at that point. He's been lampooned a few times on Family Guy. Legends, man, I haven't read this one in a long time. Since most of the DC crossovers were the victim of diminishing returns or quality, I hold Legends in pretty high regard. It's not Crisis, but it's a solid read, and it does contain some thought-provoking subtext that is applicable today. I believe what became Legends was previously announced as both Captive Crisis on Captive Earth, sorry, and Crisis of the Soul. I think Paul Levitz was once attached as writer, but his management duties at DC kept him too busy. Ordway did get lost in the shuffle between his FF and Adventures of Superman gigs, unfortunately, although Byrne and Kessel's work is quite good here. You guys don't know about Justice League Detroit? Sadly, no. What did they do? Make cars? Is that what the Justice League Detroit did? They make music. Fight Robocop. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Your move, creep. It was DC's misguided attempt to turn the stale Justice League title into a hot team book with a mix of old and new characters like X-Men, New Teen Titans and Batman and the Outsiders. Basically, New Mars attacked Earth when all the powerful members of the JLA were busy. What were they busy doing? <laughs> An alien invasion and the JLA just too busy to bother with it. They're doing important JLA things. <laughs> What, Batman's getting his ear done. Filling out paperwork. <laughs> Every time the JLA do anything, they have to fill out a report. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's why Raylan doesn't shoot anyone in Justified, isn't it? There's too much paperwork. Only he does shoot a lot of people. Yeah. And he complains about it every single time because of the paperwork. Aquaman got into a huff and disbanded the original League and instantly restarted a new League that would consist only of members who would devote their full time to this team. This is how you ended up with such winners as Vibe and Gypsy. Yeah, because they've got nothing else to do. No, yeah. (laughs) Is Aquaman, though, does Aquaman really have the power to disband the JLA? Yeah, if Aquaman disbanded the JLA, would Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman just go, yeah, right, Alpha, don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. (laughs) Is that not what they'd do? Probably. They wouldn't say, oh no, Aquaman's disbanded us. <laughs> oh no. Just laugh and go, ah, we'll wait, we'll wait a week and you'll come back. <laughs> Nothing's going on in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing at all happening in the ocean at the minute. He'll be back in a week. Maybe He'll be why, bored stiff. Maybe that's why he dedicates all of his time to it. <laughs> he's calmed down the oceans. Yeah. And now he's got Justice League Detroit. <laughs> if you were Aquaman, wouldn't you pick a coastal city? I mean, Detroit may be coastal for all I know, but wouldn't you be better be like, I don't know, Justice League Hawaii? <laughs> yeah. Because at least Hawaii's got decent weather. Hawaii JLO. Yeah. <laughs> Here comes 5 0 and it's the Justice League <laughs> with Hawaiian shirts and shorts on. <laughs> oh, please make that comic. And then one of them could leave. Okay. And then you could have Batman PI. Or they meet Magnum. Oh, please make that crossover! (laughs) 
Batman meets Magnum. Oh, I want that to happen. Anyway, Chris's email continues after tangents. A few issues later, Aquaman took off. (laughs) (laughs) So Aquaman got hissy with the Justice League for not taking the Justice League seriously. Left, formed his own Justice League, and then a couple of issues later said, I've had enough of this. (laughs) Left. (laughs) Oh, Aquaman, you're so fickle. Uh, To hook up back with Murrah. All right, so... Soon as sex is back on the table, <laughs> the Justice League are ditched. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are you making this up, Mr. Franklin? It was the only comic I've ever made that made me cry and want to burn it. <laughs> Obviously, you're not making it up. Around the same time, I love me some mask. The toys, the cartoons, the comics. Well, maybe not so much the comics, but I did buy them. I thought for sure I'd win that Camaro from the contest in Legends. I'm still waiting to hear back from them. You should see Cosmic Boy's previous Mike Grell designed outfit. Lots of Burman flesh. Well, maybe Tinky Winky would like it. I don't know. When the little girl said Godfrey's head was pointed, I think she meant he was a pinhead, but I like your dickhead explanation better. <laughs> I like the idea that I've introduced this idea to a whole other nation. (laughs) I I misunderstood and thought she was saying he's a dickhead. And they've all gone, that's better. We'll have that. Ronnie Reagan was all over DC books in the 80s, but this and Dark Knight were probably the first to use him. Heck, Batman disguised himself as Reagan just a few years later in Ten Nights of the Beast. Rubber mask over the cowl and all. As for the perfume-blinding Batman, did he have his lenses in those days? He was... He was... Ooh. Oh, I don't know. I mean, because he goes on to say that there's a white eyes artistic license. I always thought the white eyes were part of the costume. Yeah. I never thought they were artistic license. But I don't know. Because I'm trying to think now, and it's only in the 90s. I thought it was both. It's only in the 90s I can remember that he could press a button in the cowl and it made yeah. them infrared and then x-ray and stuff, didn't it? Mm. So maybe he didn't. What bugged me about it, though, was that the white light... The white lies. <laughs> Plug in the new record... The white eyes disappeared the minute that he got perfume in them. Yeah. That's what didn't work for me. That's what I thought was a little bit silly. Punky Brewster had both a live action and animated series, much like Happy Days, Mark and Mindy, Laverne and Shirley, and the Dukes of Hazard. They were all horrible. I remember a big debate running in the letters column of the Bat Books as to whether Batman's costume should be blue and grey or black and grey. Byrne was certainly the first in years to spot the black so heavily. Heck, sometimes they were solid black, but Mazzuccielli was right behind him. Batman and Robin were in an odd state between pre- and post-crisis. Heck, Godfrey's appearance in the two Bat titles prior to Legend had him been portrayed as a balding fat man, and we thought bad editorial coordination was new to the DCU. Another Legend Eric episode. Chris. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate that. That was funny, especially all that Aquaman stuff. <laughs> I will squeeze another one in, I think, because it's a very, very short one. It's a new emailer! We, we need... Some kind of Yes. New emailer. This is a new email warning. Re Captain Boomerang's dodgy Australian banter. It's from Justin Vickers. G'day, Lylands. Did you like that? Yeah, I was quite impressed with that. I don't think I will read all of it in an Australian accent. Oh, I don't think so. I could do it all as Grant Morrison because <laughs> I know that that never stops finding it funny. <laughs> Do you see you sat there laughing at my Grant Morrison? <laughs> Justin says, hello, I thought I might put pen to paper. 
electronically. As you mentioned in your last episode on the Legends miniseries that you only have 16 listeners. So I'm guessing that I might be the only listener from the land down under. Actually, I think we have two listeners in Australia. Yes. I think, uh, is Brad Glynn Australian? I don't know. I think so. I think he may be. I have never liked these stereotypical Aussie characters like Captain Boomerang and the Kangaroo Spider-Man enemy. Oh, we don't cover Kangaroo in the Clone Saga, do we? No. Oh, that's a shame. For the vernacular that the writers attribute to them is so hackneyed. I never heard anyone say cobber. In fact, the old Australian colloquialisms don't really exist these days. A bit like British rhyming slang, I imagine. We do call people mate, which would have been more apt than cobber. Perhaps they could have thrown in a fair dinkum or a she'll be right in the... At one point, Boomerang said sweet, which is extremely common slang term for great, but I don't know if that's particular to the Australian way of conversing. I guess Paul Hogan has a lot to answer for in this regard. No, we say sweet, don't we? Yeah. I mean, it used to be sweet as a gnat, which was cockney. <laughs> right. But it's kind of just been abbreviated to sweet, so we say that as well. Um, we don't say for Dinkum, but we have an equivalent. Yeah. But I always knew what for Dinkum meant. But, yeah, I, I don't recall anyone ever saying copper. <laughs> you know, maybe Ledwin read it somewhere yeah. and thought, hey, all Australians must talk <laughs> like this. Yes, Len. I've been listening to your shows for a while, continues Justin, and enjoy them immensely, which is the best kind of thing we like to hear. I think I'm about your vintage, Andrew, <laughs> which is to say perfectly preserved. Oh, of course. But for a variety of reasons, I've never married or had children, so I'm envious of the relationship you share with Michael. It must be a great to be able to educate and indoctrinate your son, doctrinate your son into the ways of geekdom. And it's always interesting to hear his different perspective on things and the subsequent discussion that this ignites. He's kind of finding his own way now. I don't need me anymore. <laughs> I picked up the Forever Evil issues after listening to your episode, and while they weren't great... There were some interesting moments to be found. Superwoman's playing of every alpha male she could find was interesting. So thanks to turning me on to that. I actually don't read any new DC these days, and very little Marvel, to be honest. My main interest in comics is reading old stuff that I missed the first time around, or indie stuff that's a bit more original than what the big two currently offer. Speaking of which, if you do request, I would request that you look at some Vertigo stuff, in particular a title called Scalped. It only went 60 issues, but what an awesome ride. If you liked Preacher, which I know you both did, I'm pretty sure you'd dig it. Who did Scalped? I can't remember. Was that Joe Lansdale? Was that a Joe Lansdale book? I don't know. Was it a Western? I don't, I've heard a lot about it, mm. but I'm not sure. I have. But you never hear as much about it as say, Sandman and Preacher and Why the Last Man. Yeah. It's kind of like Shade the Changing Man, which we both thought was great. Yeah. But no one ever seems to talk about that. Mm. But we really like Shade. The skeleton was more of a modern vertigo, like Why the Last Man. Was it that era? Yeah. I'd be a little bit tempted by Scalp, especially if it was a Western. I do like me Westerns. If you would review some old superhero stuff, I'd like to be on something like the old Spectre stories from the 70s. Those stories are extremely gruesome. Or how about a big Avengers event like the Korvac saga? Actually, that may be pretty cool. Mm. We've never really covered the Avengers, have we? Never done anything with the Avengers. Not really. I've got the Kree Scroll War as a trade paperback. I suppose we could cover that at some point. That would be interesting. Anyway, all the best to you guys. Hope you keep the show going now. Michael isn't going away to college. Cheers, cobbers. Justin Vickers. <laughs> I like that he ended with that. That was funny. Anyway, uh, I think we will knock it on the head. Though. Which I don't encourage, because, you know, could hurt. And uh, we'll be right back after this commercial interlude for somebody else's podcast. Because we're nothing, if not generous to other people <laughs> plugging those shows. Uh, with a look at the Clone Saga from the 1970s. Ooh. Ooh. Can barely contain your euphoria, can you? Sa- 
Should, should we do the Ultimate Spider-Man one next time? That's not a bad idea. Ultimate Spider-Man Clone Saga, and then do the 90s one. Yeah. That would actually be a lot of fun, <laughs> I think. Anyway, yeah, we'll be back in a minute. It started in November 2010, when one guy decided it was time to show the denizens of the internet that there was more to Superman's adventures from the 70s and early 80s than Alan Moore and Kryptonite Nevermore. Now, three and a half years later, that mission continues. This is Superman. Superman. In the, in the Bronze, Bronze Age. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every week I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era on Superman in the Bronze Age. Join in the fun at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. It's a tale as old as time. Boy meets girl. Boy and girl fall in love. Girl is killed by a green and purple clad madman in a goblin costume. The death of Gwen Stacy sends seismic eruption throughout Spider-Man fandom in specific and comic book fans generally. And to say they weren't happy is like saying that the England football team performed poorly in the recent World Cup. It's a massive understatement. Writer Jerry Conway has talked about being a figure of hate on the then-new comic convention circuit, despite the actual idea for killing Gwen being the suggestion of artist John Romita. Conway's cause was not assisted by Stan Lee. Stan was, at this point, more of a comics ambassador than a day-to-day creator, and part of his gig involved touring college campuses and other institutes of higher learning, promoting Marvel and its burgeoning appeal with college-age readers rather than just children. The backlash the death of Gwen prompted was therefore aimed at Stan as the face of the company. Stan threw Conway under a bus, claiming he knew nothing about the death of Gwen, never knew about it in the planning stages, and in fact would not have signed off on it had he known, which he most certainly didn't. Both Conway and Ramuta have poo-pooed this, stating that Stan at the very least had to at least verbally agree to it, and Conway has even stated that he would have not have done this had Stan said no or objected strenuously. Nevertheless, the deed was done. Gwen was dead. Stan, in his effort to appease these upset readers and by extension potential lost revenue, promised them Gwen would be brought back. He promptly relayed this information back to Conway, who was, understandably, a little perplexed by the demand. How did he bring back a character that had been killed, on panel, and then buried an issue later? Stan, so it goes, allegedly said, I don't care how you do it, true believer, just do it. And thus was born a story that would not only radically shake up the readership of Spider-Man in the 1970s, but would also reverberate through the 90s and beyond. Now... 
This wasn't the first time that Conway had had to deal with an editorial demand from Stan. Stan had arranged a deal with a toy company for Spider-Man-related toy cars to hit the shelves and had asked Conway to incorporate this Spider-Buggy into the storyline. Conway thought, quite correctly, that Spider-Man needing a car was like Namor the Submariner needing a mobility scooter and proceeded to treat the Spider-Mobile situation as the joke that it was. Thankfully, he would not treat the return of Gwen Stacy in a similar manner. The Clone Saga, as it would come to be known, actually ran from Amazing Spider-Man issue 129 through to Amazing Spider-Man 150, thanks to Conway's deft weaving of subplots and overarching stories. The period following the death of Gwen was a tumultuous one for Peter Parker. With Harry Osborn a wall due to his drug abuse and the death of Norman Osborn, aka the Green Goblin, causing a scandal, Peter was forced to leave the apartment he shared with Harry and room with Flash Thompson. Due to somebody covering up that Norman was the Green Goblin, Spider-Man was hounded as his murderer, first by Luke Cage, who was hired to take him out, and then by the police. It was revealed that Harry did this, and he then took up the mantle of the second Green Goblin in Amazing Spider-Man issues 136 and 137. The Jackal first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man 129, which we covered as part of those 70 shows, as we did with the death of Gwen, and he initially appeared as a shady behind-the-scenes manipulator, but his full importance would not be revealed until the Clone Saga kicked off properly. In the interim, he appeared in Amazing Spider-Man issue 130, before returning in the issues covered this week. In addition to the above adventures, Spider-Man also thwarted Dr. Octopus's scheme to marry Aunt May for her inheritance, a small island with a nuclear power plant, in one of the daftest yet most fun story arcs ever. Let's just pause for a minute that Dr. Octopus was going to marry Aunt May. Dan Slott thought too much about that when he wrote Superior Spider-Man, didn't he? Spidey then tussled with the Molten Man, who was revealed to be an old classmate, Liz Allen's stepbrother, and they met, for the first time, the Tarantula and the Punisher. He would also learn that madness meant the mind worm, and be confused regarding his feelings for Mary Jane Watson in the wake of Gwen's death. Going purely off the trade paperback collection published in 2011, the saga actually began in Amazing Spider-Man issue 139, although the 1995 trade, Clone Genesis, has it begin with issue 141. Confused yet? The last page of issue 149 of Amazing Spider-Man states that the story was six parts, meaning that it actually started in issue 144. Continuity. It's not what it once was. (laughs) As we're reading the 2011 collection, as well as having the original issues, we'll be going with that for ease of reference. Day of the Grizzly, as with all stories in this series, unless otherwise mentioned, was written by Jerry Conway, with art by Ross Andrew, Dave Hunt and Frank Gaiacoya, and cover dated December 1974. It was also issue 139, I should have mentioned that. The cover by Gil Kane and John Romita has Spider-Man being tossed about good and proper by a large teddy bear who is also clutching at Jonah Jameson and hoisting him off the ground. Your time is up, wall crawler, the grizzly states. This is the day of the grizzly. Get up, man! Screams a panicked J. Jonah Jameson. Get up! Get up or he'll kill us both! Warning! Don't sneak a peek at our last page appearance of a surprise supervillain! The cover also blurbs, which pretty much assures you look at the last <laughs> page first. What do you think of that cover, Michael? It's, it's, it's good. 
It is, isn't it? Art-wise, it's pretty damned impressive. And it's one of those that could perhaps have done without the cover copy. Yeah. The, gri- the Grizzly's just pretty funny, though. He is. I think he's he's not really a villain to be taken too seriously, is he? Not really. Yeah. This comic costs 25 cents. Which is about 15p. It's depressing as well as it is. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. The story for this one runs thus. Peter Parker is now homeless thanks to Harry Osborn no longer paying the rent on the plush east side pad and meets up with Liz Allen who has a line on a new place for him. It's not exactly the most salubrious of locations but given Peter's money woes it's the best he can afford. With the form signed and the down payment sorted, Peter heads over to the Daily Bugle to scarf up some work. Whilst there, a big lug in an overgrown teddy bear outfit storms the city room. Despite outward appearances, this grizzly, as he calls himself, hurls people and furniture with reckless abandon and very little strain, causing Peter to switch to Spider-Man. As he arrives, the Grizzly's target, J. Jonah Jameson, comes hurtling out of his window. Spider-Man saves Jonah in a web net, something Jonah isn't thankful for, and he then tackles the Grizzly. The close quarters hamper Spider-Man considerably, so he fakes a defeat which enables him to plant a spider tracer on Gentle Ben for later pursuit at his own leisure. The tracer signal leads Peter to Washington Square, where he is taken unawares by a man he's never met before, the Jackal, and a man he has. The Grizzly. Ooh, it's all very exciting. The Grizzly. The Grizzly. <laughs> You're just going to mock him. You see him. That's fair enough. He's not really a quality villain. Not really. By any stretch. He's not really a villain. He's not no, He's not really a C-lister that I would a champion. Yeah. He's just a little bit lame, isn't he? The Grizzly. He is kind of up there with the kangaroo. Isn't he? <laughs> he's not very good. Peter's homeless situation is a result of the fallout of the death of Norman Osborn. Throughout college, Harry had a plush apartment paid for him by his father, and having room to spur, Harry invited Peter to live with him. With Norman dead and Harry banged up, Peter has been sleeping on Flash Thompson's floor. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. The apartment he rents here with Maisie Muggins as the superintendent is where he will live until he marries Murray Jane in 13 years' time. In real time, obviously. Yeah. It's not 13 years for, for Spider-Man. I have to say, I really do like the pimp on page two. <laughs> I expect him at any moment to say, Say, Jim, that's a nice outfit! Spider-Man's just swinging over a drug deal going on there. <laughs> he's, it's only, he's only having a fag. Oh, okay. I mean, a smoke. That means a different thing. Yeah. He's taking a fag out of... He's taking a yeah, winky Yes. And he is purple. He's totally rocking the purple loop. That's a bad outfit, not a nice outfit. Somebody would pick me up on that. I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, Ross Andrew, the artist of this book, is one of the great underrated talents in the Spider-Man Artists Gallery. He worked on the book for a quite substantial length of time, from Amazing Spider-Man 125 in October of 1973 to Amazing Spider-Man 185 in October of 1978. A five-year run on the book, as well as contributing to Marvel Team-Up and Giant Size X-Men. Giant Size X-Men? as well as contributing to Marvel Team-Up and Giant Size Spider-Man, as well as penciling the first Spider-Man-Superman Team-Up. I always thought Andrew was a good Spider-Man artist, and he ably demonstrates his abilities here, portraying New York as a vibrant and realistic city as Spider-Man swings over it. There are pimps, smokestacks, belching smoke into the air, water towers, kids playing, and lots of panels of bit players and background characters who all look like they have a story to tell. His Spider-Man is muscular but not buff, and his Peter Parker is most definitely modelled on John Romita's. 
Apparently, Andrew would spend afternoons just walking around New York, taking photographs to use as reference. Do you like the art? Yeah. I thought it was very Remitri, though. Well, Remitri has nothing to do with this one, but he is. it was his style guides yeah. that they were using at the time. So, he was the guy who was basically laying out the template of what the Marvel Universe looked like. Mm. I don't know if he was doing that for the entire Marvel Universe. Yeah. I don't know if John Romita was laying out the style guide for the FF and, and so on, but he was certainly doing it for Spider-Man. Liz Allen crops up on page four, wearing a, a really rather fetching crop top, revealing her midriff, and very nice flurge trousers, because the 70s. She's only just reappeared back in the book after over 100 issues of being absent. This is quite a fun little scene, where Peter goes to check out his new apartment, especially his reaction to Mrs Muggins' line that uh, there is a sea view. And you have to sort of lean out, but if you look west, there she is. And when Peter looks out, he's basically looking at an alleyway. Yeah. And another building in the way. He could probably only lean out of that so far before he falls out and breaks his neck. Health and safety wouldn't let that happen anymore, <laughs> would it? Probably. He could be Spider-Man and just crawl out, sit on the wall and watch. And look at the sea. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Tons of subplots bubbling under, all ably handled by Conway. We're brought up to speed, quite naturally, on Peter's recent resigning, which seems a bit odd if he's a freelancer. I didn't get that. How can you resign if you're a freelance? You can't, you can't, can you? Does he not have a contract with Daily Bugle? No, he can sell his pictures to anyone. I mean, and does. He yeah. does and sells them to the Daily Globe at some point. And MJ isn't in this issue because she's in the hospital due to injuries sustained in issue 136. The Daily Bugle scenes are always fun, although there are points in this series of uh, 12 issues where we will mention that they are largely pointless. Yeah. And there is no reason for him to be there. He's only there because he's going to get attacked by the Grizzly. Well, he's actually there to, to try and drum up some work, so there is a logical reason for him to be here in this scene. Yeah. That's not the case later <laughs> on, when people are just at the Daily Bugle for no reason. It's, it's like the, the centre of the, the community hub. It is, yes. Not a pleasant business. Yeah. Um, the Grizzly states that he's back in town, even though we've never seen him before. A footnote points out that explanations will be forthcoming. Sadly, not this issue. You will have to wait for next issue for that. The Grizzly seems to be after Jonah, as after hurling him out the window, he takes his leave. Not bothered about anyone else. Throwing Jonah out of a building. <laughs> Happy to move on. I like the scene when Jonah comes out of his office, looks around, sees the grizzly, goes <laughs> <crush> back inside. <laughs> and just go, yeah. That is quite funny. Conway was quite good at the comedy. Sometimes he overdid it a bit, but uh, that was quite funny. That was quite a comical moment. Spidey webs Jonah up and then fakes defeat so that he can get back to him after leaving him dangling high above the street. This, he says, is so the webbing won't dissolve. Spider-Man's webbing traditionally lasts one hour. Mm. And this fight with the Grizzly can't have lasted more than, what, five minutes? Yeah. Why is he worried about his webbing dissolving so quickly? Unless it's a particularly poor batch. Could be. That's my thinking. Robbie urges Peter to get out, which only adds fuel to the fire that he suspects Peter and Spider-Man are one and the same. Yeah. You can read it with that. If you read it thinking that Robbie Robertson knows he's Spider-Man. It totally works. Yeah, it does. And it works a number of times throughout this series as well. Mm. Which I thought was quite interesting. The Grizzly Spider-Man fight scene's alright. Spider-Man's never at his best. 
in close quarters combat he's leaping about he's always better suited to the outdoors so it makes sense that the grizzly would gain the upper hand especially impressive the double page spread with only three panels on it nothing new today but back then this was quite novel yeah and it looks like it looks like those panels have been made bigger after they've been drawn do you not think yeah I, don't, I wonder what the original layout was whether it was just supposed to be one page there's something I don't know not wrong about it the inking looks thicker well, maybe it's just because they're bigger but it does look like they look like treasury edition pages you know when they're, they're blown up yeah it looks like that's been blown up somehow for some reason I wouldn't know why maybe that panel maybe it was to make the, the page count possibly because if you shrink that down it would work as one page so I mean it's very odd layout you've got two big panels on the left hand page but then the big spread is only a quarter of one page and then all of another it's a very strange layout for a page Mm. which is why it it struck me as being uh, unusual also unusual is the fact that Peter Parker is incredibly stupid on the final page of the comic his spider sense gives him ample warning something is about to happen and he still lets himself get sucker punched yeah Conway is incredibly inconsistent with how he treats Spider-Man Spider-Sense throughout these entire 12 issues you probably won't notice as much because you're reading them weekly but I've read all 12 back to back I've done all the notes and it's one of those things you're going right two issues ago his Spider-Sense worked here yeah and now it doesn't now there is an implication later on in the story that the Jackal somehow negates his Spider-Sense but it's never explained how Mm. so that confused me I, I think that the only thing that he's worried about is that someone's letting him use their phone in New York. <laughs> yeah, that makes him suspicious. Yeah. Mm. Very good. Not really part of the clone saga per se. I can see why this was cut from the clone Genesis trade in the 90s. However, it's a prime slice of 70s Spider-Man. The supporting cast are present and correct. Peter is in a rough situation due to the events of issues 121 and 122, the ramifications of which are still reverberating 20 issues later. And if it's a little bit pedestrian, it's largely because Conway is setting up the upcoming story strands. The Grizzly is in no way any kind of genuine threat, so it's just a matter of how long it'll be before Spider-Man hands him his head. But if a reader has been following the boot for a while now, the actions of the Jackal are approaching critical mass. What did you think? I, I enjoyed it, actually. They're, they're good, solid comic books. It's not bad. It's no. not great. No, it's it's a typical comic of its era. Mm. If you were given this as a ten-year-old kid, you've got a lot to enjoy here. Yeah. I think. And I did. <laughs> so... There you go. Adverts, because we have the original issues. Adverts in 70s comics are normally a lot of fun. There's an advert for what to do when you get out of the service. There's an advert for making money quick. Monster-sized monsters. What other size would monsters be? Average size. A Lincoln Kennedy penny. Average size monsters. (laughs) The spider's web is a two-page lattice page. I can't see that there's anyone of interest there. And there is a bullpen bulletins. Stan Lee has a soapbox talking about uh, Treasure Edition and Origins of Marvel Comics and, and all that kind of stuff. Marvel Comics still number one, but we try harder. Do you want a He-Man body? Uh, is one of the adverts. In fact, there's a couple of those adverts. By the power of Grayskull. By the, yes, by the power of Grayskull, indeed. There's an extra bullpen bulletins page. 
I don't know what we've done to deserve an extra bullpen bulletin page, but bullpen bulletins was always interesting. And that was pretty much it. Maybe I was wrong about the 70s having interesting adverts. (laughs) (laughs) A slight mistake. On my part, though, the adverts in this one being rather boring. Maybe it's just because you don't want a He-Man body. Maybe it's because I don't want a He-Man body. Yeah, that's absolutely true. (laughs) Amazing Spider-Man issue 140 and One Will Fall is cover dated January 1975 and has a cover by Gil Kane and Mike Esposito. It's a montage of Spider-Man swinging at the reader as shards of other events spiral around him like a stained glass window in church. The events depicted are Spider-Man dropping in on Jonah, Peter worrying over a large bracelet on his arm, Peter changing to Spider-Man, Peter strapped on an operating table as the Grizzly is about to perform a lewd sex act on him, and the Grizzly mounting Spider-Man from behind, presumably the lewd sex act he was thinking about in the previous panel. Other than that, it's actually quite a good cover. Spider-Man looks a bit off... But I think that's more down to Gil Kane than anything else. It's alright, isn't it? It's, it gets an awful lot of information across in a very short amount of paper. It's no point in us reading the rest of the issue, though, because that tells us it more or less everything. It, it doesn't tell us how he gets out of these various different problems. No. So, it's alright, isn't it? So, yeah. It doesn't suck. No, not bad, by any stretch of the imagination. Peter is drugged by the Jackal and the Grizzly and is found in the lobby of the Daily Bugle building later on by Betty and Ned Leeds. They treat Peter to a coffee and it is here he learns that the Jackal has clamped a large bracelet to his forearm that will explode if tampered with. Using this device, the Jackal hopes to find out Spider-Man's real identity. Which makes no sense because the Jackal knows Spider-Man's real identity. Peter must put this problem on the back burner as today is his moving day. Flash Thompson helps Peter move his meagre possessions into his new apartment, but is more struck by Peter's neighbour, Glory Grant, than by Peter's new digs. Peter works late into the night and successfully removes the bracelet with an acetylene torch, the jackal obviously overselling the danger. With this device removed, Spider-Man swings over to the bugle building where he finds Jonah still working, and by working I mean asleep on the couch in his office. He asks why Grizzly was after him, and Jonah says that the Grizzly, then known as Maxwell Markham, was a pro wrestler who was far more vicious in the ring than anyone else. It was Jonah's moral obligation to expose this fiend, and if it sold a few papers, well, so much the better. Spider-Man feels a small amount of sympathy for the Grizzly, but this guy has gone over the line, and as much as he may not like it, he and the Jackal must be stopped. The Washington Square apartment is now abandoned, but Spider-Man tracks the Grizzly to his old gym, Halberstam's on West 34, and wouldn't you know it, Grizzly is the paying back all the people who laughed at him when his career was destroyed. Spider-Man arrives and strips the Grizzly's costume off of him, layer by layer, correctly predicting it must be some kind of exo skeleton. He tells Max that he was Jameson's chump and now he's the Jackal's, but not to worry. The Jackal will be going down real soon. Considering that the first half of this issue gives an inordinate build-up to the large bracelet that the Jackal clamps to Peter's forearm, he seems to remove it really easily, doesn't he? Yeah. I I don't see the danger behind it. If you try to get it off, it'll vibrate until your arm falls off. That's one intense massage. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I interpret it as if you do anything, it'll blow up, which but would probably be a bit more severe than, than that. They specifically say it'll vibrate so much your arm will turn to dust. So it wouldn't kill him? No. It would just take his arm off. It's not see how vi- it would vibrate him would take his arm off. It vibrates itself to powder instantly. 
Is the exact quote. <laughs> yeah. Comics! <laughs> um, but yeah, Pisa, Pisa just gets a, an acetylene torch on it and... Oh, there you go, it's fell off. Maybe the jackal didn't expect him to have a torch. I actually did not see the point of this at all. As we will find out as the story unfolds, the jackal already knows who Peter Parker is. Yeah. He knows that he's Spider-Man. So this entire danger plot thing serves no purpose whatsoever. Because the Grizzly doesn't care who Spider-Man is. Yeah. The Grizzly just wants revenge on J. Jonah Jameson. He doesn't give a toss about the Spider-Man part of the plot. So the Jackal doing this makes no sense at all in the overall narrative arc of this story. It adds some extra level of tension, a ticking bomb situation to this issue. Yeah. But in taken in, in context of the whole story, no, it just doesn't make any sense. Maybe what? this wasn't planned that far ahead. No, well, that wouldn't make sense either, because when we get to the last issue of this saga, the Jackal says, I have planned it all perfectly! <laughs> Apart from that pointless putting of the thing on his arm for no reason whatsoever, because yeah. you know he's Spider-Man already. Maybe he just wanted to do it anywhere for, for the fun. Maybe he just wanted to do it for laugh and giggles. Yeah, yeah. All right, fair enough. What struck me, the Jackal clearly refers here to Peter Parker still being a teenager. Yeah. Pay attention to that. That will come in useful later on. The first appearance of Glory Grant uh, is actually quite notable. Glory, being a model, is something that will be largely forgotten. And she'll end up being Jonah's secretary. And then he's PA when he becomes Murr in the recent Superior Spider-Man stuff. She's one of the few members of the Spider-Man supporting cast that stuck around, despite not being created by Lee Ditko or Romita. Flash is quite taken with her, and the relationship between her and Flash may have been more interesting than Flash's on-again, off-again fling with Shah Shahan. What is it with Burr Midriffs? Was that a 70s thing? Because she's got one of them on as well. Probably. Alright. I don't remember a lot of Charlie's Angels. I don't <laughs> remember if they, they wore clothes like that a lot. A number of writers have concentrated on J. Jonah Jameson and tried to flesh him out and make him a three-dimensional character, despite the many stupid things he's done over the years. This story, however, portrays him as a reprehensible scumbag. Yeah. There's no journalistic integrity to what Jonah does here. He targets the violence in wrestling purely as a means to sell papers, rather than being a, a genuine crusade for the public good, and then ruins this guy's career just because, doesn't he? There's nothing to be gained from doing what he does here. It goes a long way to giving the Grizzly some much-needed depth, but it cheapens Jonah. And seeing as Jonah's a regular character and the Grizzly's made, what, three appearances since this? Mm. If that? It's, you know, if Jonah had expressed some regret over this, maybe I could have forgiven it a little bit. I just don't get where the shock comes in. Especially with his face, though. I was shocked to see how violent he was. You were shocked to see how violent a wrestler was yeah. in wrestling. That's, that's like saying I was shocked that boxing involves beating people yeah, up. Yeah. That's the point of the sport. It's, you know... How that's... exactly does that make him a menace, though? Does he go around punching civilians? Yeah, he's doing it in the ring. Yeah. That's, that's my entire point, that... The motivation for Jonah doing what he does makes him seem really small and petty. Yeah. But that has been a characteristic of Jonah's anyway. He gets kicked out of wrestling. Why? What evidence did they have against him? What exactly did he do other than fighting? They may have just made an example of him at that point. 
Yeah. Because Joan is targeting the sport generally and saying it's vicious, and he specifically targeted this one man, the wrestling commission may have thrown him under a bus to get yeah. Joan off the back. So I, that bit fell into place quite reasonably. But Joan are actually doing this. No. This isn't a journalistic crusade for the greater good, is it? He's just being an asshole. Yeah. Because he can be. Based on what Jonah tells him, Spider-Man then goes and locates the Grizzly. It sure was lucky, wasn't it, that the first guy Spider-Man hits up for information remembers a wrestler from ten years ago to start with. And then when he gets where this guy sends him to, the Grizzly has only just got around to enacting his revenge. Yeah. What if he'd done this first? What if he'd gone and got these guys and tossed them around a bit before he went after Jameson? Spider-Man would be <laughs> out of luck, wouldn't he? <laughs> I don't get why he just goes up to there anyway, just because he can. Yeah. Oh, they laughed at me ten years ago. But I'll show them, I'll show them all. But I'll wait a little bit <laughs> after I've got my exoskeleton and my powers, and I'll go and chuck J. John and Jameson out of a window first, and then I'll pal around with the jackal for a bit and maybe beat on Spider-Man, because, you know, it's fun. And then... I'll go and get my revenge on the people that laugh at Just as Spider-Man drops in. Yeah, it really was fortunate, that, wasn't it? Yeah. As far as these things go. Spider-Man's also quite mean-spirited to Paul Max at the end of this this storyline. I mean, none of what he says is untrue. He is a bit of a joke, and he has been used as a patsy by Jonah and then by the Jackal. But Spider-Man does come across as a little bit of a bully himself at the end of this, doesn't he? Yeah. Are you saying because he's a supervillain he deserves it? Well, I'm just saying he didn't get anything that he didn't deserve. He did kind of break into the Daily Bugle and smash some stuff up and then threaten J. Jonah Jameson. And, then and he did throw him out of a window. Yeah, and then he broke through here and beat up those two guys. Yeah. All right. I just thought Spider-Man was a little bit more mean-spirited than he than he perhaps needed to be. But all right, yeah, he's a bad guy, screw him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that. It's not a bad issue in and of itself. It's not really that important to the Clone Saga, though, you know, the Jackal Burley makes an appearance. If they wanted to include every appearance of the Jackal to this point, it would have been a much fatter tread paperback. Mm. Wouldn't it? It was all right, wouldn't it? Yeah. I didn't think it was as good as part one. I thought it was better. Did you? Why? I don't know. There was just more to it. Oh, well, yeah, as the synopsis explains, you've got a lot of backstory on the Grizzly, and it was good. I enjoyed it in that way. I enjoy Bronze Age Spider-Man comics. But yeah. uh, there was too many little bits that made you go, wait a minute, that makes sense, because I've read the whole thing now. Yeah. So, you know, whatever. Uh, adverts in this one are a little bit more interesting. You can learn Kung Fu and Karate. Because it was the 70s. Yes. And martial arts were big. The Origins of Marvel Comics was out. Do you know I looked for ages for that trade paperback when I was a kid? That fireside trade paperback never found one. No. To this day, I still never owned Origins of Marvel Comics. The Mighty Marvel Calendar for 1975, a collector's item that'll still be valuable in the year 2001. You never know. Was it? Uh, it probably is if it's all in one piece. Sell Grit. Talked about Grit on Two True Freaks before. It sounds like a con job to me, but whatever. Uh, learn more karate, because the 70s learn more karate but this time savate and jujitsu there's still adverts for the he-man body but uh, i'm far more interested in the fact that again the spider's web was two pages morbius the living vampire enters the mansion of the undead and blade the vampire slayer battles the unliving legions of the damned in this month's vampire tales actually sounds like a cool comic mm-hmm 
I'd pick that up. Three-dimensional Marvel superhero action scenes, Spider-Man and the Hulk, big posters by Len Wein, John Romita and Herb Trimp. I don't know what Len Wein will have done. Oh, it's a model kit. Ah, right. Spider-Man's beating up on Craven and the Hulk's just smashing stuff because he can. There's an advert of some really cool Spider-Man toys. There's a Spider-Man squirt gun. And then there's a Kung Fu fighter. I don't know what that's going to do with Spider-Man. Spider-Man stunt cycle, probably to cash in on Evil Knievel. The Spider-Mobile, there you go, that I mentioned earlier on. Spidey foam. I don't know what that is. But more importantly, it's Spider-Man and Captain America Mego dolls. Selling for the amazing price of $2.99 plus 69 cent shipping. God, I wish you could buy it for that <laughs> price now. Be all over that. Did you already finish high school? Now get a diploma without going back. So obviously the people that read comics never went to high school. Okay. Apparently so. Uh, Marvel Soapbox. Marvel Soapbox. Marvel Bullpen Bulletins publishes Man Gods from Beyond the Stars, which is an issue of Marvel Preview. Capitalising on uh, Von Daniken's Chariot of the Gods, which was popular at about this time. And there is a huge one-page advert for, you wanted it, you got it, the grandest, most gigantic issue of the world's greatest comic magazine. Mighty Marvel proudly presents the second of its mammoth-sized treasury edition. Every page a giant-sized 10 by 14, a block-busting 100 pages of the Fantastic Four's most spectacular adventures. Soul-searing stories by Stan Lee. Action-packed art by Jack Kirby. Featuring the Fantastic Four's most fearsome foes, Doctor Doom, the Submariner, Galactus, the Silver Surfer, not to mention the irrepressibly incredible Impossible Man. All this and more will be yours, faithful ones, when you grab this cataclysmic issue wherever magazines are displayed on sale September 17th. And that was, of course, the second Marvel Treasury edition. Never had it. Ever on that one. What was the first one? Spider-Man. Ah. The Spider-Man was the first one with some um, Lee Ditko ones. I think it's the Clash with the Hulk from the Green Goblin and a couple of others. Uh, the back cover has an Evil Knievel advert. Evil Knievel was awesome. I totally had the stunt and crash car gyro-powered energizer for the motorbike. Okay. That's the one I had. I didn't have the scramble van or the stunt stadium or the Canyon Sky Cycle, but I had the gyro-powered energizer motorbike. Like the Crash Bandicoot one? Yeah, it's exactly like Crash Bandicoot. That's exactly what it was like. Love a bit of evil, Kenny. Amazing Spider-Man issue 141. The man's name appears to be Mysterio. Cover dated February 1975. Has a magnificent John Romita cover of Spider-Man being attacked by various adversaries, including Mysterio, Doctor Octopus, the Vulture, Morbius and the Jackal. Admit it, webhead. You're finished. Even you can't survive an attack by all of us, Mysterio claims. Sounding suspiciously like Stewie from Family yeah. Guy for some reason. I- I'm willing to bet Spider-Man can survive this, given that issue 142's here. <laughs> so, <laughs> Given that with over 600 issues. Yeah, and that as well. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> it's an excellent cover, that one. I really like that one. I don't know why Morbius makes the grade over a more, I don't want to say popular, because there's nothing wrong with Michael Morbius, but a more recognisable Spider-Man adversary, like, say, the Scorpion. Maybe he was selling. Well, then, in that case, what's the Jackal doing on there? Well, he's in the issue. The Jackal's, though, because that's the current storyline, so I can live with that. Yeah. But Morbius, I would have thought the Sandman, maybe? I mean, it's not like he's tackled Morbius that recently, is it? 
I don't remember. I don't know that he's unless he was in a giant size X Men around giant size X Men, <laughs> giant size Spider Man around this time. Mm. I think he may have been actually. What do you think? No, it's good. I like it. It's excellent, isn't it? I really like that cover. And that's uh, it's pretty good. It's almost a reworking of the Sinister Six. Yeah, but there's only five of them. Spider-Man screeches through deserted alleyways strewn with garbage and empty cardboard boxes as the squeal of the police sirens follow him in his magnificently trippy Spider-Mobile. Avoiding the Hazard County Police, he turns down an alley only to zoom off the edge of a pier. What? The police can't be bothered dredging the river for a body and Spider-Man manages to escape. The next day at ESU, Professor Warren, Peter's chemistry teacher, scolds him for falling asleep in class. Peter is greeted by Mary Jane and the two walk home, their burgeoning feelings in the wake of Gwen's death confusing to them. Elsewhere, J. Jonah Jameson receives a phone call that makes him very happy, and thus a major subplot cometh. Later that night, Spider-Man swings about town only to be blinded by a strange mist. Through the mist, Spider-Man spots a figure as his eyes clear, a figure shaped like Mysterio. Mysterio clocks our hero and then flees the intention clear. A trap. Spider-Man has clearly studied at the feet of Obi-Wan Kenobi and decides to spring the trap, which does not go his way, oddly enough, as many and varied members of the Spider-Man rogues gallery attack our hero. It's all an illusion, which doesn't stop Spider-Man from punching the crap out of a wall that he thinks is the Green Goblin. For reasons of plot, a bandaged and weary Peter Parker dropped by the Daily Bugle only to be told by Ned Leeds that Mysterio died in prison a year ago. Dun dun dun! The Spider-Mobile, arguably the ugliest and most pointless of the superhero vehicles, created simply so Corgi could make a toy, makes an appearance. Spider-Man careens through the surprisingly deserted streets of New York. This does beg the question of exactly when Peter Parker learned to drive. Maybe when he got the Spider-Mobile. You think? Yeah. You think he couldn't drive until that point? And presumably Spider-Man doesn't actually have a license, so the police are well justified <laughs> in pursuing him here. Why are they even chasing him? Cause Look what he's driving. I, I, I guess. Do you think that thing's roadworthy? <laughs> really? It, it doesn't even give a decent reason as to why he's driving the Spider-Mobile. Uh, he's driving the Spider-Mobile because they have merchandise to sell. Okay. And the police are following him because at this point he's wanted for the murder of Norman Osborn. Right. And so what better thing <laughs> to do... If, if you're wanted by the police and to drive around... <laughs> In a vehicle that, that screams, screams Spider-Man here! <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> yeah. It's god-awful, isn't it? I, I, to be honest, I quite like the Spider-Mobile. I quite like the Spider-Mobile story. I love the Jerry Conway didn't take it seriously. Yeah. And it shows in the plots. <laughs> but it's... It, god, you know... It's absolutely dreadful. How the hell, as well, does Spider-Man hear what the cops are saying on page two, panel two? He's been pursued by the police, right? Yeah. They are behind him in a car. Yeah. So they're a fair distance away. If you go and sit in a car, and I sit in the car in front of you, (laughs) I can't hear what you say. Yeah. Maybe they're being really loud. (laughs) (laughs) And you're you're postulating that Spider-Man has a little known power... Spider hearing. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. Never been mentioned again, dude. Um, Never mentioned before. <laughs> well, 
did he, his spider sense just toggles on and off whenever <laughs> the plot says so? So basically, you said his spider sense, his spider hearing toggles on and off. Yeah, yeah. But it's such a crap power. It's only ever toggled on this once. Yeah. And then you forgot all about it. Only it only works when he's using the spider, the spider buggy. The spider buggy. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Fair enough. I'll, I'll go with that. One of the things I did notice as well: the spider mobile's not an automatic. Because okay. he has to change gears when he, he drives up and around the uh, the monument. Yeah. So, alright, fair enough. Spider-Man crashes the Spider-Mobile into the Hudson River, which maybe Jerry Conway commented on what he thought the whole thing. It's nice to see the cops not giving a rat's ass whether Spidey's dead or not. They're like, oh, if we're lucky, he's dead. Yeah. Can you be bothered diving in there? No, me neither. Should we go get a hot dog? Okay. Spidey's reaction to them doing that is quite funny. It's like I'm so popular these days, the cops even don't want to dredge for my body. Um, is web shooters being waterlogged a nice touch? Because it means he has to walk home, which fits into his his whole uh, his whole Parker look thing. Well, leap and climb. But it, it contradicts earlier stories where he's been in water and had no issues with waterclogged web shooters. Mm. Maybe the Hudson River was just incredibly polluted at this point. And it's just gummed up the works. Or maybe he's just bad web shooters. Or maybe he's got a bad batch of webbing, like with J. Jonah Jameson in the yeah. earlier issue. See, it all ties together. Mm-hmm. I reckon Jerry Conway actually thought long and hard about <laughs> that. He didn't think long and hard about a lot of things, but he no. thought long and hard about that. Spider-Man wondering if he's starting to imagine things would possibly have had more impact if the villain of the issue hadn't been given away in the title and on the cover. Yeah. That kind of ruined it, didn't it? Because you're supposed to think he's cracking up. But if you know anything about Spider-Man and you know anything about Mysterio, you're just sat here going, it's Mysterio, dude. Yeah. Which is, you know. MJ also makes a point of greeting Peter as brown eyes, which makes it all the odder that they colour his eyes blue through the entire issue. (laughs) Which really bugs me. Does it? Yeah, because he doesn't have blue eyes. He has brown eyes. Hence Murray Jane calling him brown eyes. Do you think the colourist even read the script? Probably not. I would wager not. MJ has not enrolled for the new semester at ESU following the harrowing events of the Vulture story a few issues prior. I actually don't remember if Murray Jane went back to college or not. Or if she just started working at this point. I know she's not doing the go-go dancing anymore in the cage like she was doing in that club. The Peter Murray Jane scene is is actually really nice and quite touching and I I liked it a great deal. It's during Jerry Conway's tenure that MJ stepped out of Gwen's shadow. Not hard, given that Gwen was dead. And became more than the party girl free spirit. She's come all the way down to ESU despite not having any classes just to meet up with Peter and walk home with him. It's a very subtle way of showing MJ is here completely for Peter in the wake of Gwen's death. And that the two of them are a little bit confused by what's going on. Hmm. I liked it. I thought it was quite sweet. I like his relationship with Mary Jane when it's played properly. But you just see Gwen's head just floating. Yes. Yeah, well, she's only recently died. I guess. I'm getting a little bit of let's, let's mix in the subtle with the right on the nose. Floaty head of Doom. Yeah. Eh, or floaty head of Gwen. Be, be a different thing if you've seen Doctor Doom's floaty head. <laughs> <laughs> the J. Jonah Jameson scene will pay off later, but it's, it's a good example of Conway weaving his subplots into the main narrative. While it's not quite as in-depth as Chris Clermont's, the average Conway issue could have as many as three different subplots bubbling along under the main drive. And I don't care what the speech balloon says about him giving him some money. 
Spider-Man steals this guy's McDonald's lunch. Yeah, and then he doesn't even eat it. No. This guy's walking along, minding his own business, when a couple of kids run past him, so he lifts his hamburger out of the way, his McCheese sleaze bag, <laughs> dirt bucket and fries, or whatever it's called, and Spider-Man just webs it out of his hand and starts eating it. He doesn't even get to eat it, though. Oh, yeah, and he says he's going to web down a few dollars, but he doesn't, because he blacks out. So then when does it, when is he going to do it, though? Exactly, exactly my point. He says he's going to do it. <laughs> yeah. But we've known, he's, by the time he's eaten that, that guy's gone. Yeah. How's he going to pay him? Spider tracker. <laughs> he's going to put a spider tracer on him. Yeah, yeah. Rock up at his door later on and say, yeah, sorry that <laughs> you, you're starving now because you spent your last $5 on that McDonald's meal, making you, you know, giving you a lot of calories to get you through the night in the hopes of hopefully being able to find a job tomorrow to support your three children. I do apologise that I stole your lunch. He's having a rough time. He's, he's having a rough time. No, he's a menace. <laughs> Jonah Jameson's right. Spider-Man's a menace. Um, the final confrontation between Mysterio and Spider-Man never actually happens because it's all an illusion and Spider-Man beats up on a wall that results in his hands being quite seriously hurt. It's then that we get the cliffhanger ending, which reveals Peter may very well have been driven insane, as Mysterio died in prison a year ago. It's not that this is a bad issue, it's just a little bit lopsided. The Peter Parker stuff is more interesting than the Spider-Man stuff, which, let's face it, is Mysterio 101. Despite being featured in a Clone Saga trade, there is nothing regarding the Clone Saga here, except the appearance of a character in his civilian guise, and Spider-Man stealing something deliberately left a really sour taste in my mouth. I didn't get past that. I didn't get past Spider-Man. Thievery. That would be like the scene in the alley, though, where he starts cracking up. Yeah, and then beating up on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. I like that bit, but for the most part, this was it, the Peter Parker stuff was a bit more interesting, wasn't it? Hmm. What did you think? I, I quite liked it. Once we got past the, the spider bucket, <laughs> it crashes it into the Hudson River. Yeah. It's not like it's it's hanging around for very long. I like the mysterious bits though. Did you? Yeah. I, they just felt very samey to me. Mm. It all mysterious. Uh, Mary Jane's rocking a seventies miniskirt. High platform boots, a yellow turtleneck and a green short leather jacket. This looks very fetching. Ads in this issue, uh, pretty much the same as last issue, although Adam Warlock is on the loose. Witness the triumphant return of the sensor-shattering superhero who wouldn't stay dead in the latest greatest issue of Strange Tales, which is uh, Jim Sterling's Warlock run, which is absolutely fantastic. Well, well, uh, well worth recommending. We heartily recommend it. Mighty Marvel Strikes Again, first the spectacular Spider-Man, next the fabulous Fantastic Four, now the power-packed Prince of Asgard lashes out on his own king-size special. With pardonable pride, your batty bullpen presents the latest, greatest double-sized treasury edition, which obviously stars the mighty Thor. Unknown worlds of science fiction adapts Day of the Triffids, which is pretty cool. I like Day of the Triffids. And the other treasury edition is the superhero holiday grab bag. Your blushing bullpen proudly presents the first annual collection of Christmas classics and colourful combats. Guess who's coming to Christmas dinner? Merry Marvel, that's who. Every page, a giant-sized 10 by 14. A riotous 100 pages of full colour, no ads. 14 of Marvel's most significant superstars drawn by 8 of Marvel's most talented titans. All for you. What a way to fill your Christmas stocking. I have no idea what was in that one. Never read it. 
I'd quite like my Treasury editions. I would very yeah. much like to have all my Treasury editions, but they're very uh, expensive. quite expensive over here, though. Mm. If you pick them up for a decent price, you're doing okay. Paul Spataro annoyed me the other day on a, a recent podcast he was on by saying his shop gets them for $5. <laughs> uh, I wanted to fly over there and, and buy them for that price and then realised that the cost of flying over there yeah. would negate any savings <laughs> that I may make. That seemed a little bit silly. Dead Man's Bluff appeared in Amazing Spider-Man issue 142, cover dated March 1975. It has another excellent John Romita cover, with Mysterio avoiding a Spider-Man web shot by lifting his head off. It's, it's not possible. Nobody could do that, states Spider-Man, despite all the evidence of his eyes. Wrong, retorts Mysterio. Anything is possible for a dead man. Which is rather silly, as I imagine. There's a lot of things a dead man can't do. Like breathe. <laughs> or live. Or live. So, there's not really a lot of things that are possible for a dead man. Mysterio means madness! Runs the cover copy. Did you like that cover? Yeah, yeah. All the covers have been great, haven't they? They don't do them like this anymore, do they? To be honest. No. They're very exciting. And uh, why would you not want to pick that up with your 25 cents? Or 15 pennies? Whichever. Spider-Man is fishing around the Hudson River for the Spider-Mobile when hallucinations strike back. Another pointless battle with a Mysterio that isn't really there ensues. Back in his apartment, Peter calls Aunt May so she can freak out when Peter sees hallucination of the Kingpin about to crush MJ's head like an egg. Attempting to save Mary Jane, he hurls his phone at the nothingness, freaking MJ out a bit, but causing Aunt May to have a conniption. Mrs. Muggins and Glory also happen by, wondering what's going on. Peter says, the phone slipped. Yeah, slipped, out of my hand and all the way across the room. But neither woman really challenges this, and Glory invites Peter to a party. MJ's hackles rise. At the bugle, Jonah is happy and celebrating that soon Spider-Man will be no more, and everyone is more suspicious of a happy Jonah than a grumpy Jonah, including Peter and MJ, who have again just dropped by because the bugle is no longer a place of work, but a hanging out joint for people with no homes to go to. Case in point, Betty Brant and Ned Leeds, who finally announced their wedding date. Mary Jane confides to Betty her feelings for Peter have changed, but on the way out, Peter ditches her after seeing someone he thinks is Gwen Stacy. Later, Spider-Man swings over the Wall Street area where he crashed the Spider-Mobile and happens upon a skylight that has a light on. Really, that's his big clue. It has a light on. The tracking device he made tells him that inside is Mysterio. Wait a minute, what? Tracking device? Oh, I'm sorry, lovely listener. Did I forget to mention that when changing to Spider-Man, Peter found an image inducer planted on his costume and that was causing his hallucinations? And then he made a tracer that backtracks the signal of the inducer? It's okay. The writer wasn't really interested in it either and just mentioned it in passing. Another fight with Mysterio happens, and it's the same as every other fight with Mysterio, even the one earlier in this issue, and Spider-Man learns that this is Danny Burkhardt, not the original Mysterio, Quentin Beck, who really did die in prison, apparently. Burkhardt took Beck's stuff and in a page of exposition explains the plot. He omits one crucial detail, however, that the man behind the man is J. Jonah Jameson. He calls Jameson from the police station stating that if Jonah wants his name kept out of it, he'll get Burkhardt a lawyer, stat. Jonah flees to France. Which is perfectly normal when you're in trouble with the law to go to France. Never wanted to go to France anyway. The fight with Mysterio, like 
all fights with Mysterio is a game of smoke and mirrors, with Mysterio pretending to be there and then disappearing in a puff of smoke while Spider-Man flails around trying to figure it all out. Conway does write some funny moments, Spider-Man leaping at the figure only for it to turn to smoke and then put his hands forward to protect him, to then recall that he's hurt his hands and lands smack on his face. Well, was pretty funny. Mm. I thought that was quite amusing. The fight goes pretty much as you would expect it to. There are two problems with a villain like Mysterio. He's a lot like the Lizard in that he's a pretty decent villain for one or two stories, but after that he sticks pretty much the same every single time. The second problem with Mysterio is that Stanley and Steve Ditko did his two stories, so pretty much everything else is repetition. I would also like to know if Spider-Man borrowed that little underwater breathing device he's got here from Batman. Because yeah. it does look like Batman's rebreather, doesn't it? Yeah. Note as well, Peter's eyes are still blue. <laughs> I am going to keep pointing that out because it really does bug me. That, I don't know why, that but it does. panel of Aunt May, though. She does look demonic. That, that is the smile of someone who eats babies. <laughs> is that why you're saying how Aunt May just won't die? <laughs> yeah. Because she's eating babies. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Peter's cracking up hallucinations are played very well. Seeing the kingpin appear behind Murray Jane in his apartment adds to his growing unease. And if this weren't a Mysterio story, it would be pretty effective. Aunt May is pretty shrill and useless, but she's not here a lot, so we can just move on. <laughs> we can just ignore her, can't we? Peter! Peter, what's happening? Peter! Ah! And then she dies. I'm having a heart attack. That still won't kill me. <laughs> That is quite unfortunate, isn't it? MJ gets her claws out classily, of mm. course, when Glory comes a calling, which I thought was a nice, uh, a nice little bit. Subplots are all accounted for. Copyright from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, with Jonah doing a happy dance over his future statue that will proclaim that he was the man who destroyed Spider-Man. Betty Brandt and Ned Leeds finally set a date for their marriage, despite being engaged since, what, Amazing Spider-Man 33 or something like that? Um, and it wouldn't actually happen for another year, occurring in Amazing Spider-Man issue 156, cover dated May 1976. And MJ starts to admit that her feelings for Peter may have deepened. The Jonah one is more worthy of discussion. Much has been made of the fact that in his quest to destroy Spider-Man, Jonah has caused irrevocable damage and even committed illegal acts. The only way to really justify this instance is that Norman Osborn was a good friend of Jonah and Spider-Man is now wanted in connection with his death. And maybe Jonah feels that bringing down Spider-Man, someone he knows is a menace in his own head, that will somehow enable Norman to rest in peace. As we know, however, Norman's not really dead, he's just over in Europe. Chilling out. It's a funny. It's it's funny how that Peter and and uh, Jonah didn't bump into him in Paris. <laughs> that would have been quite funny. Wait a minute. Are you supposed to be dead? Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, we the audience finding out that the image inducer that was causing all of the hallucinations in the first place in a flashback is incredibly lame, as it makes that. Spider-Man finds Mysterio by pure chance mm. until we get that flashback scene that is kind of important to the overall narrative and there is no reason that it couldn't have been done properly. It's not quite as lame as the Scooby-Doo ending. It's, uh, it's all a bit... What? It's, it's really not Jerry Conway's best work on this title. The whole Mysterio storyline is blur. 
The resolution is handled in flashback and with happenstance. And the I'd have gotten away with it is awful. And the funny ending is silly. I was just expecting music to appear underneath it as Jonah flees to France. Because it doesn't. If, if he gets him a lawyer, surely the lawyer will have to know who's paying him. Yeah. So it well, didn't really make I sense. I don't get why he says, if you want your name kept out of this, Jonah, he says in front of <laughs> he said four, in front police of four policemen. And he's made his one call to J. Jonah Jameson yeah. the Daily Bugle. Yeah. It's, it's not very well thought out, really. With regards to the Clone Saga's overarching plot, Peter sees somebody who may or may not be Gwen, but shrugs it off as a result of the image induced, and there's really very little else to this issue. It's not bad by any means, but there's a fair bit of clumsy plotting, and any time an ending needs a page of exposition to explain the plot, it's always an unsatisfactory read. Also, at the end of this issue, apparently the real Mysterio is really dead. He killed a Lee Dickcourt villain off-panel. Yeah. Just with a casual, oh, by the way, he's dead. It, it, it's alright for a twist ending. Yeah, and especially as it turns out that Mysterio isn't dead. Yeah. And will come back later and then get killed again. And then get brought back again by yeah. Kevin Smith, won't he? In an editorial cock-up. The ads this week, again, follow the same. You can learn isokinetics, a new breakthrough in muscle building, apparently. Formula One has a, a bunch of corgi action dolls dolls action toys you know what I mean I'm sick and tired of my job runs an advert that looks like it's got Ed Norton in it <laughs> doesn't it yeah that is so Ed Norton I'm so. sick of my job so I started a fight club <laughs> which fits yeah. you know the first rule of fight club is you don't discuss Fight Club. Uh, only one page of letters um, there's nobody there that I know or recognise Although it's uh, it's nice to have the letters pages, Marvel po- poster masterpieces. You've got um, Spider-Man, Cabbage Sword of Conan, Captain America, The Incredible Hulk, Dracula Lives, and The Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. Bruce Lee by Neil Adams, or the Doctor Savage Sword of Conan by Neil Adams. These all sound pretty cool to me, don't they? Mm. So I wouldn't mind some of those posters and Mighty Marvel belt buckles. I'd be down with a Mighty Marvel belt buckle if they hadn't been ruined by having that bloke on Big Bang Theory wear them. Okay. He wears them all the time, doesn't he? Does he? Yeah. Okay. One of them does. There's another Marvel bulletin, Stan Lee's soapboxes, a holiday greetings poem, which is uh, very nice of him. And there's a mighty Marvel Comic Con where you can meet Stan Lee in person. If only we knew of a con <laughs> that we could go to where we could meet Stan Lee in person. Not anymore. Not anymore, no. Uh, that's about it, really, advert-wise, isn't it? Yeah. Did you like that wrap-up storyline? I, I just like the Mysterio stuff, yeah. I like Mysterio. I like Mysterio, I just didn't... I mean, I suppose you could explain it that this guy isn't actually Mysterio. Yeah. He's just nicked his equipment. So the reason for just rehashing all of Mysterio's old shtick, I suppose you could argue, works. Because he doesn't know any better, does he? Because yeah. he's, he's an ersatz Mysterio. And not a real Mysterio. Call it there! Four issues next time. We will cover four more issues of The Amazing Spider-Man. Issue 143, 44, 45 and 46. Because that makes perfect sense because they are sequential. See how that works? Yeah. Wouldn't make any sense to do 143 and then 149 (laughs) and then go back and do 148, would it? It wouldn't. That would be a bit silly, Mm -hmm. I think. So, next time, more Clone Saga excitement. We hope you will join us. See you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. 
New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. And Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. And we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.